Today's podcast is sponsored by SeatGeek. If you didn't know, SeatGeek is the official ticketing partner of the Brooklyn Nets. Whether you're trying to go to a Nets game, Liberty game, concert, or any other event at Barclays Center, you really only need SeatGeek. Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. We did, but honestly, I was left with more questions than answers, Tony. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. And I'm Michael Costa, comedian from The Daily Show. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1. Our F1 102, if you will. And get all of the answers. All of them? Listen to Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story, and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time with the players and coaches who lived in them. Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Or what about the the after parties? We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games With Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Courtside Conversation. I'm your girl, Allie Love. After years on the hardwood as the in-arena host for the Brooklyn Nets, it's time for me to take it courtside. We're here with artists, athletes, and all of our favorite people to break down the game called life. We're getting real about the grow up and the glow up. So let's take a seat. Comedian, actor, producer, writer, and native New Yorker. Our guest today does it all. Now, you may recognize him from The Daily Show, King of the Hill, Nickelodeon, or even his own Netflix comedy special. Prepare yourselves for some good laughs and great insight, because we are taking it courtside with Wyatt Sinek. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Courtside Conversation. I'm your girl, Ali Love, and I have a special guest, Wyatt Sinek. He is a comedian, he's a host, he's an actor, and he's a really down-to-earth, homebred, Brooklyn guy. I'm so excited that you are here, Wyatt. Now, some of you may know him from HBO. He's the host producer of uh, Wyatt Sinek's Problems Area, where you talk about social and cultural issues around the U.S., one of my favorites. Also, my first introduction to you uh, was actually The Daily Show, Jon Stewart. We can go on and on, and we'll get into some of that. But first, let's check in. In this day and age, I think the question that most of us are asking, but then not fairly answering, is how are you doing? That is a very good question. I feel like that is, yeah, it's such a good question because, yeah, it's such, the answer is so, how many podcast episodes do we have to just devote to the answer? Um, It could take... It could take a while. I feel like I'm doing all right. I, you know, I think like everyone, there are ups and downs. And it seems like the biggest thing is trying to make sure you have uh, 
the time and the space to deal with the downs and you have the outlets to kind of burn off that energy as you need to in healthy ways. And so I feel like in that, in that regard, I feel pretty good. I've got resources. I've got uh, people for the down moments. I've also got those people and resources for the up moments. What is that when the down moments happen? Cause I can say right now, uh, no matter when you're listening to this, unfortunately a mass shooting is has probably happened at some capacity in your lifetime, no matter your age and if you are tuning in. And so we're right now in the midst of another mass shooting. And I can tell you waking up with a heavy heart. I mean, that's a luxury, to be honest, given what the families and friends and those that are that have passed on and were murdered actually are going through. So when you're talking about those down moments, because you talk about a lot of things, including, you know, like we said, social and cultural issues what we're living right now. What are some of those resources in the down moments? Give us some, help us out here or help me out here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, You know, I think some of it is just being able to have other people to talk to about these things. You know, I think it is such a, such a difficult thing to wrap your head around when something so horrific happens and to do it by yourself is you're only going to kind of, spin in and focus on all the things that break your heart. And sometimes being able to talk to other people, one, there's that shared, that shared empathy that comes from, I see you're hurting, I'm hurting too. We can both talk about our hurt together. But also maybe we can, in talking about it, start trying to talk about what it is that we can do, not just for ourselves to to move beyond this moment but how do we do things as a society as a group of people to try to at least curtail some of these things because the sad reality is you're never gonna get rid of the the problems that we are continually faced with as society but there are things you can do and steps you can take to try to limit those things or at least to mitigate them or slow them down. And, you know, I think it starts with those conversations you have with another person as a way to process that. But the more conversations, the more people talking, that's how movements grow. That's how movements happen. It's that concert of voices collectively coming together and saying, we want change or figuring out how to make change. It may be talking to that person who is a lawyer who's like, oh, you know what? Like, let's see how the legal system, maybe there's something here we can do that, you know, goes beyond voting that we can do to sort of limit, you know, the power of lobbying dollars that allow legislation uh, that is way too friendly to gun control, uh, you know, to, sorry, not gun control, but to gun rights activists, like, mm-hmm. and the NRA, let's like, maybe there are steps we could take that way. Maybe there are other things we can do. Maybe we can talk to politicians, but I think it starts with those conversations and just opening your heart up to other people and also both as someone talking and as someone listening. As a comedian, which I think is one of the hardest skill sets. I am not funny by any measure 
or sense of sure funniness. You are. No, no, no. People, I, I am, I'm, I own my space. People laugh <laughs> at me, and that's what I love, not with me. I'm the person who tells the punchline before the joke. It gets all confusing. I can host in front of millions of people. I cannot tell a joke. I have to read it off a of paper. But what I recognize about comedians and why I adore y'all so much is that you have your it's it's a pretty powerful position. It's not just making someone laugh. It's making someone laugh. It's making them laugh 20 times in three minutes. Um, but also it's thought provoking, right? Your job is, is, is somewhat in some capacity to how do you say like rub a sensitive area for you to either think for you to question and for you to get irritated will still lead you to think and question. So it's, it's kind of like this cycle that you invoke by just a joke and not, and it's not even just a joke, but, but the technique of, of being a comedian and what you've done so well, and which is why you have this HBO show and even on you know the daily show when it was around and even funnier die is that you have this ability to get in there and to make us think, to make us question, where did this come from? Like, when did this start for you? And at what age did you know, this is what I meant to do? I didn't, I didn't always know. I think I, you know, as a kid, I was like you, I told the punchline before the setup and I always wanted to be funny. And I always, I, I admired comedians and I was, I could never tell a joke to save my life. And then I feel like there was a moment when I was, I don't know how old, I must have been maybe like 11 or 12. And I was at a friend's house and my friend, my friend, Brian, he was the funniest kid I knew. And I could never say anything that would make Brian laugh, but Brian always had me in stitches. And I remember another friend of Brian's was around and I just started, I, I just started making her laugh and like, and it was this thing where I felt the, the joy of it. And maybe it was because it was something that for so long I had wanted to be able to do the moment I heard somebody laugh and it felt like, Oh, I'm actually steering this ship. I'm controlling this. That became such an amazing feeling that I then just continued to kind of chase and obsess over. And, you know, I think to your point, as far as using comedy as a way to kind of look at conversations that we may or may not be having in society, uh, that I feel like, I feel like just came from growing up as a black person in America, <laughs> where you are, you are faced with so many injustices, not just the things that you see that are happening directly to you or to you as a people, but I think there's also an empathy when you watch it happen to people of other races or people of, you know, different religions or different backgrounds where it's like, oh, I see what they're doing to you. They do that to us too. I think in in that it's seeing all those things that it's hard to it's hard to to live a life and blow past that like those mm -hmm. things don't exist so it feels like well okay I'm always being confronted with thing with these things if I can use comedy as a way to also 
process some of that for myself, but talk about it. And again, like we talked about earlier, those connections you make in dialogue with other people, stand-up is a dialogue too. It's just a one-sided dialogue (laughs) where I talk, but you respond with laughter or with booze or with applause. And so there's a dialogue happening there as well. And so it just felt like, well, these are the things that I'm always seeing. So why don't we all talk about this? And uh, maybe with some laughter, it's a way to kind of open the door to those conversations. Best scenario, you say some material, you're, you know, whether it's a sketch, whether, whether it's speaking, material comes out, people respond with an, a laughter. What's the worst case scenario? Is it, are, is it when people are booing or is it silence? Um, I mean, I guess it would be, it would be silence more than booing because at least with booing and I, I'll be honest with, I, with either of them, I think it's actually fine. I think a good comedian. You're okay. Like you're fine. You're like, it doesn't penetrate if someone is booing you or there's silence in the room. It hurts, but I think what would hurt more is if everybody walks out because Mm. if there's silence or if there are booze, they're still engaged in what's going on. And so I think, you know, some of the most talented comedians that I've ever seen are people who still deal with the room and what's going on in the room. And there's the late comedian Patrice O'Neill was a master at that where he would infuriate people in the audience, but then he would engage with them. And it was this dialogue as far as like, all right, you're upset, but let's talk about it and let's talk about what's going on or I'm going to try to make my case. And so I think in that way, yeah, even silence there's still the opportunity to be like, okay, that didn't work. What, uh, like, what happened here? Where did I lose you? Or, you know, and Mm -hmm. some people might be like, there might be one person in the audience who was like, they may answer. And then it's like, all right, now we're back. We're, we're in it. We're connected. But yeah, I think the, the worst would be if the entire audience collectively just got up and walked out. Being a comedian back in the day was like one of those skill sets that was very unique in the sense that you're going to make a career out of it. It's not easy to do, to make a career out of anything these days, but let alone a comedian. They're late hours. I mean, it's 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 a very small group of folks that make it on to that next level, whether it's movies, whether it's a TV show, as you've done your own show, multiple sh- Netflix series, which you've done, you know. Was there ever a point of contention or internal conflict? For those that are listening that are just like, I feel like when I see a comedian, I can do this, but can I really do this? Can I support myself? Can I make it in that small, that eye of the needle? When was that moment for you of, and was there ever a moment of internal conflict where you're just like, am I really going to pursue this knowing that there are only a, a few of us that make it, right? Only, right. only 400-ish people in the NBA. Like it's only X amount of comedians that really make it or should I turn around now and use a, and leverage a different skill set? Right. I, I don't know that that conversation, I don't know that you ever stop having that conversation. Oh, oh. because I think to your point, it is like, 
there is a rarefied air if you can, you know, quote unquote, make it. But we live in a time where there is no job security. There is no, all right, you are, you know, you could be the the greatest comedian of this moment, but that's just this moment. There's somebody else who's gonna pop up and they're going to be that person. And I always, I feel like even before I started doing comedy professionally where I was getting paid for it, I always found myself looking at, if you looked at like movies with comedians and like those starring movies, the one thing that always struck me as interesting was that there was a pattern that you, you would see that like, okay, Bill Murray has like, four or five movies where he's box office gold and then Mm -hmm. it stops. And then it's like Eddie Murphy is box office gold for like six or seven movies. And then they become flops and then it's Steve Martin and then it's Will Ferrell and then it's Kevin Hart and then it's Tiffany Haddish. And you, the thing that I, it felt like I always saw was that most of these comics at best, if they were lucky, got on average like four big things. And then it was, okay, how do you pivot? How do you like, it wasn't the security of like Bob Hope where it's like, you're going to get a, you're going to get a movie every year and you've got a guaranteed TV special and all this stuff. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, you, you got to figure out what it is that as the winds change, how do you shift with those? But also, are you are you just shifting with the winds or are you doing things that you enjoy and that bring you some sense of fulfillment? Because I think the other challenge with that is those winds are always going to shift. And if all you were doing was chasing the wind, when they shift past you, then what do you have? You know, like it becomes a thing of like, if what you were doing, if making people laugh, if getting on stage and making people laugh was truly what you enjoyed, then you'll find ways to keep doing that. But if the idea was, I want to be the biggest celebrity, when you're not the biggest celebrity, what do you, what do you have at that point? And so I feel like that's the thing that, I always tried to keep in mind was just focus on the things that you enjoy and find a way to make the things you enjoy enough to like keep a roof over your head and meals in your belly and do those things that inspire you because that's where you'll put your best energy and effort into, Mm -hmm. but also then you're not chasing you're not chasing something. You're just charting your own path. Today's podcast is sponsored by SeatGeek. If you didn't know, SeatGeek is the official ticketing partner of the Brooklyn Nets. Unlike any other apps, SeatGeek makes buying tickets super simple. Whether you're trying to go to a Nets game, Liberty game, concert, or any other event at Barclays Center, you really only need SeatGeek. SeatGeek puts tickets from all over the web in one place to make buying simple. 
Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. Lily Herman, my co-host in season one, helped me choose a team, a driver, and then... Well, we sent you on your jolly way. Yeah. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. I'm Michael Costa, comedian, Daily Show correspondent. And we're back with season two because, as it turns out, F1's newest fan is still a little... Dazed and confused. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1 as we dive deeper into the rabbit hole of the pinnacle of motorsports. Who makes money here? What's CFD? How do you manage a tire? You, get back in there. What are the rumors? What's the gossip? But you also know that someone's listening to your radio. Uh, I'm going to pull up a picture of a tea cozy. I want to see what this thing looks like. Are you going to be doing that accent this whole pod? Listen to season two of Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You find it. I'm Julian Edelman from Games with Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time. I'm talking Hall of Famers, MVPs, gold medalists. I absolutely hate the Colts, bro. This game, I swear, led to the deflate gate. Hey, guys, this ball's a little flat. <laughs> Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Julian walking around. I'm pretty sure he had his shirt off for reasons I'm not sure. He was saying, gotta believe. Oh, you gotta believe. From 18-1 with Eli. You call Bill just a cheater? Is that what you're I'm saying right saying now? He's, he's looking for an advantage. The 2004 ALCS with Big Poppy. They Red Sox in 2004 bounced back after the 3 0 in a winner chicken dinner. Homie. The immaculate reception with Terry Bradshaw. Fired the ball. I hear the roar of the crowd. I never thought he caught the ball, but he did. We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games with Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali back in 1988, and to my great surprise, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on family, spirituality, and on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ, including people such as Reverend Al Sharpton, and James Buster Douglas. We'll even hear from Muhammad's daughter, Rashida. Well, my dad was, he was Peter Pan. Like he never really grew up. He was very mature when it came down to social issues. He was very in tune. He felt a responsibility to be able to share his connection to millions of people who were in need. In each of these stories, we share lessons, lessons that have meant a great deal to me and that I hope will be meaningful to you. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's interesting because I feel like that's a theme for me this week. I was having a conversation. I do these short segments called Mind Over Matter, and um, they're, they're also with athletes. And so I was talking to Christian McCaffrey, the NFL uh, player, and he was saying like, do everything with purpose. And that's exactly what you're saying is like, if you, ad- if you identify what your purpose is, then you can apply that purpose, whether it's practice, whether it's writing material, whether it's producing, whether it's on stage. And when you look at the other players, or the other comedians or the other folks around you that are playing in similar spaces, you can almost cheer them on because your North Star is your North Star. You've identified that metric for success, the things that make you happy, that align with your purpose. And you're not, in your words, which gave me the visual of Pocahontas staying on the top of the mountain, um, 
real Pocahontas, but either way, sitting right. on the top of the mountain, you know, colors of the rainbow in the wind or whatever. Yeah. You're not just like, you're not moving with the wind for you as it pertains to, and maybe this is a two-parter, maybe it's like in your professional life and in your personal life um, to really get to know you. What's a non-negotiable for you? Like when you think of like professionally, as you're lining up for a job or you're going in for a meeting or you're about to step on in front of the camera or on stage, this is a non-negotiable for you, but why at NBK? Like what's a non-negotiable? <laughs> wow. What's a non-negotiable? Um, you know, I think uh, probably the, the ability to say stop or to say no to if to if I did not have that, I feel like that's non-negotiable in that in that I feel like there's so many things where you can kind of especially in in life, if you take a job and there's something that's not comfortable to you that too often we you know, we're in jobs where it's like, well, you're uncomfortable, but just just grin and bear it and push through. Yeah. And I feel like the ability to say, stop, hold on. This isn't making me comfortable. This isn't, whether it's the job itself or whether it's a moment in the job, that ability to say, stop, I need a minute. Uh, and I need to I need to be able to to either express these things and hopefully have something change or the ability to walk away. Um I feel like those things are uh the non-negotiable. I've not done a lot of movies, but I've done enough and I remember doing a movie and the, the weird thing about like a movie is you know it'll take anywhere from you know 2 weeks to a month to make and i remember once making a movie and we we're probably about like a third of the way into it so maybe we'd already shot like 10 days of this movie and i remember thinking to myself oh wow this movie could be a turd like it could be terrible. And, well, what, like you just, from the material you've seen so far? Yeah, I think because once we started, there were things going in before we, before we shot anything. It was like, <laughs> oh yeah, this seems like it's a fun idea. It seems like, you know, everybody seems on board. The directors seem like they, you know, they're interested in hearing our input. They, like, they seem excited by the idea. The script seems to make sense. Like, there's definitely some jokes that could be funnier and we'll be able to do that, you know, as we're working on it. And then, yeah, about like 10 days in, it was, I think the first day you shoot, it's like, okay, that was okay. Like we're, you know, we're getting our feet wet and then two, three more days in, it's like, okay, yeah, that scene, that still wasn't that funny. We didn't really get to fix it, but all right, there'll be other scenes. And then about 10 days in, it was like, Oh no, this is this could be a turd. But I can't walk away from this. This isn't like this isn't like another job where I could say like, you know what, I'm out. Like yeah. I 
I like they can't replace me. Like to do that would mean they'd have to reshoot all 10 days they already shot. And I think it was going through that experience. I remember talking to one of the other actors in the film and it was like, this thing could be a turd. And he was like, <laughs> yeah. It, and, he, and, and there was something nice about us both being like, okay, we're in a turd. And then what became paramount to us was we are in a turd, but how can we, what is it that we can do? How can we, at least in this process, try to make this smell slightly less bad? Mm -hmm. And in some ways that became, you know, we had to find ways in an already moving thing to do that. But that experience also, it made it very clear to me that, okay, you need to make sure that throughout any experience that you work in, there is that ability to say stop and to say, hold on a second. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this isn't serving me or it's not serving us or it's not serving that person and we got to fix this because even if it's going to be a turd at least let it be a turd that we all can walk away from saying like all right at least we tried at least we gave it our all at least and at least we felt heard and enjoyed ourselves yeah. while you know still still a turd but we can at least say we had we had the best time possible making it. There you go. Still a turd. I don't know why that makes me giggle like I'm in elementary school, but that's what it's supposed to do. So it landed very well with this audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's step into some game time moments. One of the things that we talk about for people who are hyper performers, whether you're an athlete, you're a comedian, or just all of our favorite people, um, it, are those moments of struggle. What is? How do you define struggle? Struggle... I feel like it's, you know, if you have a goal in mind and I think it's moving towards that goal, I feel like once you have a goal, then you accept struggle. And that may be, you know, if you're an athlete and your goal is to win a championship, it's not supposed to be a cakewalk to the championship. No. So, you know, the moment you say, I want to win a championship. You have opened the door for struggle. And knowing that it's like, okay, then that is what you are accepting to try to get to that goal. And so I think once you set a goal, you've also set a struggle. Once you, you know, it's, it's any of those things. It's, you know, to think about uh, you get on a bike and you set a resistance. The Ooh, goal is the to bike. exactly the goal is to ride for twenty minutes or an hour. Yeah, but it's not to it's not to ride on the lowest setting. It's to put some resistance and to continue to add that resistance. And yeah, I can't I can't do it as eloquently as you. <laughs> but you're doing a great to, job. I was like, are we? Are you auditioning right now? Like, I, I mean, you're a Peloton look, instructor. Yeah, turn the knob to the right. All there right, let's go. just let's just add a little more. There we go. There we go. Reach we, down and turn that knob. <laughs> let's keep turning the knob. Um, let's turn the knob in this game time moment to gratitude or to grace. Tell me one person, maybe it's people, uh, where you would say 
could that that has a tribute to your experience of getting you to where you are like a figure it's like has linda hand and if so how so sure um from a from a comedy standpoint i would say uh colin quinn is probably the person who i uh, throughout my life has really played like a huge role and colin was uh he was on saturday night live i uh, was a, he's a stand up comedian very very funny stand up comedian but in the 90s he was on saturday night live and my first job in any of this world when i was 19 years old i got an internship on saturday night live and colin was somebody who made time for me and answered any question i had and i would try to write sketches and colin would read them and give me notes on them and was so gracious with his time when he didn't need to be i mean he was like on television <laughs> he was a successful comedian and he made that time for me at 19 years old and then when i graduated college colin remembered those sketches i wrote and suggested me to the producers at SNL for a writing job and I didn't get the job but because of that I got an agent and throughout my life Colin the day I decided I was going to quit the daily show randomly like you you talk about like just the random sort of magic of New York City I got off the train and I was like I think this I think I'm done and it was raining and I just happened to kind of like walk under this awning of a building and Colin also happened to be there the he was leaving like his lawyer's office which was in this building and I stood and we talked for probably 45 minutes or so and I talked to him about the decision I was about to make and he talked me through it and just was like oh wow at various points in my life like I have been fortunate enough to have his advice to have his counsel to have his input and yeah so I I would say he is someone I've truly been grateful to have had come in and out of my my life and career uh as a comedian I had the pleasure of seeing I go to Comedy Cellar on a certain day every week my <laughs> husband again I'm a huge fan of comedy so much so like I go at the same time you know the people at the door I've been going for years and um it was one of those shows where Colin Quinn was actually hops up on stage you don't know the lineup you know how it goes hops up on stage and I, I will say uh, the best gift he gave me was the gift of laughter, which is is a really valuable gift to me, especially at moments, which is why I try to go on a weekly basis. Um, but I have to ask you, you talk about the story of Colin Quinn and how he was that moment of gratitude that he was the assist, you know, for you in this game moment. Um, but leaving the Daily Show, I never looked this up, but I I watched the Daily Show up until its very last show, and then it trans transitioned to Trevor Noah, like all the things. Still currently a fan of the show. What was it that made you decide to leave? What what not even maybe made you decide to leave? This is a better a better question. 
how did you know it was the right decision? You never know whether it's the right decision. I think you could second guess it a dozen times and come up with a dozen different answers. I think for me, ultimately, it became a thing of happiness that this was a job that this was a job that I had wanted for a very long time. And Mm -hmm. I had hoped it would be one thing and it became something that did not bring me uh, uh, a sense of happiness uh, personally. And then professionally, it felt like I was hitting a wall um, and the and so it it felt like to grow at both professionally and to grow in a way that felt less toxic. It was like, okay, I think I have to, I need to leave. And that wasn't an easy decision because that's also, I'm walking away from a paycheck. And mm-hmm. You need those in, in in the world we live in. And so... So I've heard. So yeah. I've heard. <laughs> or so um, I've learned. So I've learned. <laughs> yes. So, but yeah, so it's... it's I, but I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's it's very easy to say, if a job is making you unhappy, walk away from it. Uh, it's very easy to say that on on the outside. It's so difficult to do that, to make that decision. And, but I think, again, if your goal, as if you have a goal, whether it is to be fulfilled in your career or to have a, you know, a healthy work-life balance, you, again, going back to that Peloton analogy, Mm-hmm. you're going to have to reach down and set that resistance and know that if there's a goal, there is also the struggle. And so it's, I, I think, you know, I could have made myself comfortably numb in that job and mm-hmm. dealt with a lot of horrible shit that I felt like I, I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. I could have gone numb to that and been like, there's a paycheck. I come in at, you know, I come in at nine, I dip out at six and, you know, when I'm here, I turn it all off and I don't react to any of it. And I'll give my, you know, 60 to 80% energy and effort into this, but I'm not going to stress out or I'm not, I'm going to try not to stress out and whatever. And I'm going to collect this check and it'll be what it'll be. But that takes a toll in other ways and you could do that. But is that truly what you want to do? Because you're still, there's still a struggle with that. There's still the struggle of you go to, you know, you go out to eat with friends and they talk about the jobs they're in. And it's like, oh, they're not having to, (laughs) they're not having to, you know, deaden themselves the way you are to, to go into the office every day. Huh. All right. Well, now. Is that, do you like that feeling? Do you like hearing them kind of like follow, you know, live their lives in a different way than you? And not to say that you want their lives, but to see that like, oh, wait, there's a better way. There's another, like they're working a job that isn't asking them to, you know, like deaden themselves inside. And also their ceiling 
is higher than yours because if all you're doing is giving 60 to 80% of average work, you're probably not going to get promoted. You're probably, you're probably going to stay at that same level. And so I think in those ways, it's like, all right, yeah, there's, there's always going to be a struggle. It's what goals do you choose to prioritize? And if you choose to prioritize goals that put your own health and well-being and happiness ahead of the, you know, just, I can just keep making this paycheck. Mm-hmm then yeah, there's going to be different struggle, but there's going to be struggle regardless. It's the struggles that you want to face versus the ones, you know, that are going to just not really, not really leave you at the end of the day with anything other than, yeah, that paycheck. Last season on the Choosing Sides F1 podcast, we established unequivocally that F1 is the pinnacle of motorsports. Lily Herman, my co-host in season one, helped me choose a team, a driver, and then... Well, we sent you on your jolly way. Yeah. I'm Tony Cameron Brown, a tech, culture, and F1 commentator. I'm Michael Costa, comedian, Daily Show correspondent. And we're back with season two because, as it turns out, F1's newest fan is still a little... Dazed and confused. Join us for season two of Choosing Sides F1 as we dive deeper into the rabbit hole of the pinnacle of motorsports. Who makes money here? What's CFD? How do you manage a tire? You, get back in there. What are the rumors? What's the gossip? But you also know that someone's listening to your radio. Uh, I'm going to pull up a picture of a tea cozy. I want to see what this thing looks like. Are you going to be doing that accent this whole pod? Listen to season two of Choosing Sides F1 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you get your podcasts. You find it. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time. I'm talking Hall of Famers, MVPs, gold medalists. I absolutely hate the Colts, bro. This game, I swear, led to the deflate gate. Hey, guys, this ball's a little flat. <laughs> Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Julian walking around. I'm pretty sure he had his shirt off for reasons I'm not sure. He was saying, gotta believe. Oh, you gotta believe. From 18-1 with Eli. You call Bill just a cheater? Is that what you're I'm saying right saying now? He's, he's looking for an advantage. The 2004 ALCS with big copy. The Red Sox in 2004 bounced back after the 3-0 in a winner chicken dinner. Homie. The immaculate reception with Terry Bradshaw. Fired the ball. I hear the roar of the crowd. I never thought he caught the ball, but he did. We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games with Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali back in 1988, and to my great surprise, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on family, spirituality, and on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ, including people such as Reverend Al Sharpton, and James Buster Douglas. We'll even hear from Muhammad's daughter, Rashida. Well, my dad was, he was Peter Pan. Like he never really grew up. He was very mature when it came down to social issues. He was very in tune. He felt a responsibility to be able to share his connection to millions of people who were in need. 
in each of these stories, we share lessons, lessons that have meant a great deal to me and that I hope will be meaningful to you. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. For the listeners that potentially will have are experiencing this exact internal conflict um, and making this decision soon, just a little more insight. Did you, when you decided to leave, did you have something lined up or some things lined up? Or was it more that your time was consumed on the on the energy to leave? My time was consumed on leaving. I, I tried, okay. I think I definitely tried to have some some things like some other irons in the fire. And I tried to kind of like look to that. I think more than anything, what I the main thing I tried to do was let me save some money so that I just have a cushion to land on. And that I think the hardest thing is like, you know, you can quit a job and there may be another job right around the corner, but everything, if you're in a bad situation, you still probably want a moment to catch your breath. You still probably want a moment to recharge your battery, to heal, to to take, to recover. And so, and, and to process it all and to recover and process it all in a way that's like, okay, now that I'm, now that I've stepped away from this, what are all the things I liked about that job? What are all the things I didn't like about that job? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and use all that to decide again, you know, thinking about athletics, you think about professional athletes. And when someone decides to move to a different team, very rarely is it like, well, the season ended on April 15th and on April 16th, I've decided to take my talents to South beach. It's usually (laughs) like, let's, let's (laughs) let's take a, let's take a People from Cleveland right now are still feeling that. Okay. That hurts them. Even though they, there was some retribution, it still hurts them. (laughs) (laughs) But there's, but usually it's like, okay, I need, I need some time. I need, I need a few weeks to just kind of like, you know, wash off the last, the, the last season. And I need a few weeks to just like recover and to think about what is it that I need to, to go to set my goals towards Mm -hmm. what is it that I need? What is it that I want? And so I, I think the biggest thing more than anything else is I would say to anyone who was thinking about a career change or anything like that is like, Make sure you've got some cushion. Make sure you have some savings. Make sure you have those resources, you know, a therapist, like that you could talk to somebody to help process that, that you have, that you're not just jumping and going right into the next thing because sometimes doing that, you're like, you haven't, you're still, your motor's still going. You still haven't had that time to just be like, okay, take a minute, take a breath, take take some time, go on a vacation and just like get, you know, treat yourself for a little bit and then reset and with a clear head, point your, you know, point your compass in a direction that you want to go. Love it. All right. Before I let you go, um, two more things. We're going to play something which is called, I call it fire rapid. I know it's called rapid fire. 
Okay. But it's it's a, it's my it's my form of like a 24 second shot clock. Okay. So I'm gonna ask you questions. You can get a 24 second shot clock violation. When I go like this, it means you're taking too long. You All get right. more than two, you have you get a zero on this game. The goal of this on every episode is to see which of our guests actually get the most in 24 seconds, right? Okay. What's so, the what's the record so far? What am I going to? Right now it's it's up for grabs. We probably have like six. It's it's all kind of in the same okay. area. So I'm looking for an outstanding guest. All right. I feel you got it. Well, okay? there's a lot of pressure now. Okay. No, 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 no. I'm gonna I'm gonna put the timer on. I'm gonna tee up the first question. So I'll give you the first question. Before you answer, I'll press the timer. You get to start with that one and then I'll read from there. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Okay. So the first question is going to be: don't answer yet. Your favorite sport to watch. On your mark, get set, go. Basketball. Age you started your career? 19. Favorite food? Uh, roti. Re- reality TV or scripted TV? Uh, scripted. What's, who's your role model? Um, grandma. Switch places with anyone who could it be? Um, uh, Allie Love. Ah! <laughs> I give you extra seconds because I felt like my name was coming up in there. All right. We got seven. That's still better than our previous guest. Seven answers. Um, wait, I also got caught up when you said roti. I was like, I also wanted to jump in and create a shot clock violation for myself. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's in your roti? Is it just roti with some curry? Like what, what do we got? Curry chicken. Um, curry sometimes, chicken. sometimes curry goat. Uh, yeah. Uh, my father was from Grenada. My stepfather was from Trinidad. I grew up, uh, I was born here, and but grew up in Texas. And so whenever my grandmother would come to visit, my stepfather would always ask her to bring roti skins yep. from Gloria's. Uh, and so she would have to like freeze them and put them in her luggage. So her luggage was always cold. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, we would just like, feast on those. But in Texas, there wasn't, at the time, there wasn't a lot of like West Indian spots or like Caribbean spots. And there was an ice cream parlor called La Belle Creme. And it was owned by some Caribbean folks. And like once a month on like a Sunday, out of the back of the ice cream shop, they would make curry chicken and curry goat and curry beef. and it was a thing where like my stepfather would get me and my brother and we would go and they would make roti. And it was some of the worst roti ever. Like just like, like horrible roti. They might be still selling it right now. They trying to make their coins. (laughs) I've checked. I think the ice cream Uh shop is out of business, (laughs) but (laughs) but it was, it was terrible. But at the same time, we were so starved for any for any curry. And so it was just like, this is great. Like it's that weird thing of, you know, if you if if that's the best you got, you you're gonna like none, the flavors are close enough. And so that uh, but still, even that bad roti still like always felt like, oh, okay, this. This connects me back to New York. It connects me back to my Caribbean heritage. It's like, and mm-hmm. so that for me was always, uh, yeah, always my favorite. I'll, I now will make like 
I'll make curry chicken at least once or twice a month. And I'll go uh, over to like A&A and pick up some roti skins and just, uh, and that's my, yeah. And whenever, whenever I, I need a, a meal. Yeah. You can't, you can't really get roti in the city. So you have to go to Brooklyn yeah. to get it. So you live in Manhattan proper, you like can't get it. You got to go to Brooklyn. But it's funny because your story about your grandmother reminds me of my, my mother-in-law. Every holiday in her suitcase, I'm not trying to get her in trouble, but in her suitcase, we claim it, you know, she always brings for my husband kiss cakes, um, Ovaltine cookies, which I have them right here on my counter. And then um, Matuk's guava jam, because to get Matus, ShopRite used to sell it. Then they stopped selling it. And then if you order it on Amazon, it's like $15 a bottle when you're like, hold up. No, 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 no. This is like, this is like two TT. Like it ain't nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. And so, and then she always uh, brings curry powder. So it's one of those things where I know exactly what it is. But after the holidays, it's like you have your kitchen is full and sorrow, like, you, you know, proper sorrow. So oh, yeah. sorrow leaves, like dried sorrow. So you like have your proper things from Trinidad, right? Like, in your kitchen. So it just reminded me of that because she still does it to this day. And I get excited. I mean, Matuk's yeah. is lit. Guava jam is, it, it slaps, you know? Yeah. No, that's, it's wow. When you said, I didn't realize Matuk's was now like $15. That's Well, when you order it, like, yeah, you have to try to find it. It's not, it's not in New York anywhere. I don't know where people are, where they live and where they may have access to it, but nobody that I know has access to it. That's oh, for wow. a reasonable price. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. I, it's funny because, yeah, that was always in the cupboard. And it was just one of those things that I think, yeah, I took for granted, like just always seeing that. And yeah, it'd find its way on a kitchen table with dinner. And yeah. Wow. Last, last thing, last bit before I let you go. Um, for those that are listening, what is your, I don't want to say what's your next, because I always believe in going deep instead of going wide. But if that is appropriate, take it. Um, but what's your now? And if, if not now, what's your next? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. And Thank I don't, you. <laughs> I don't know if I have a good answer. I feel like, um, you know, I, I think for me, I, uh, I've loved the ability to get to create my own stuff. Uh, and I feel like I enjoy getting to do that. I enjoy performing. I enjoy writing. I've gotten to direct a little bit. I feel like I would like to find more ways to, to do that, to kind of find more ways to tell stories I want to tell in, in ways that feel more complete to me. I think you write a story and that's one part of the journey. That's, and it's fun. You, you know, it's, it's, it's hard too, but it's like, you get to build this world. And then sometimes you write something and then you hand it off to other people and then they, you've made the blueprint, then they get to build it. And I think I enjoy getting to, to build it too. And then I enjoy getting to, to ride on the thing I built. And so I think as much of that stuff as I can do where, okay, yeah, I wrote it and I can perform on it as the person who gets to ride in it, but also I can direct it. Uh, and that's sort of helping to be the person who's building it. And so I would say for me, that's what more opportunities to kind of do that, to, to have a more, what feels to me more of a, a, a complete like hands-on process from, beginning to end 
rooted to the tutor, as uh, some might say. Rooted to the tutor. It has been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for sharing, for taking a seat next to me in this courtside conversation. I really do appreciate your time. I love the work that you do. So please keep doing this work because people thank like you. me need it. So thank, thank you, Allie. No, thank you. And thank you for what you do too, because I think you bring a great joy to so many people. And I have enjoyed, I used to live in a building that had a Peloton bike and I enjoyed many times having you as a, a riding partner because Yay. I think there's beyond simply just getting my heart rate up. I feel like there was a lot that you were doing to help turn what was just like a sweaty experience into one that feels like, okay, this is, this is more than just exercise. This is making choices that have impacts be the after you step off the bike and that the energy you put into this exercise is the same energy you can put into so many other things in your life. And we joked a lot about reaching down and turning that knob in yeah. terms of how you sort of uh, approach your work life, relationships, friendships, whatever. But I think that's something that I truly appreciate. The, you know, I, I don't know if that metaphor would exist, if I would have had that metaphor to go to, if you weren't so, so great at creating a space for, uh, for that kind of energy to, to exist and, and thrive. So thank you. Wow. That makes me feel really good. I always say, you know, how do you do, how do you do one thing or how you do a few things is how you're going to do everything. So I try to take it with me everywhere. So thank you. Well, thank you. It's mutual admiration society oh that's our new club i'm in it <laughs> last season on the choosing sides f1 podcast we established unequivocally that f1 is the pinnacle of motorsports we did but honestly i was left with more questions than answers tony i'm tony cam brown a tech culture and f1 commentator and i'm michael costa comedian from the daily show join us for season two of choosing sides f1 our f1 102 if you will and get all of the answers all of them listen to choosing sides f1 on the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to The Tao of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Julian Edelman from Games With Names, and we're on a search to find the greatest games of all time with the players and coaches who lived in them. Ever wonder what a locker room feels like at a halftime of a Super Bowl? Or what about the, the after parties? We're going to dive deep into the most iconic games with the most iconic people. New episodes dropping weekly. Listen to Games With Names on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.